Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On June 19th, 10 storytellers shared their stories with our audience at Holy Hound Tap Room in downtown York. The theme for our June Story Slam was Memory Lane. We heard stories of a grandmother with Alzheimer's losing her memory, an oral history project that connected one of our storytellers with his great-grandfather, and memories of working for a family business. In the end, our winner was Mark Lentz, who won with his story about his favorite high school teacher who left a lasting impression on him. Good evening. So I wasn't quite sure what story I was going to tell for this because I have a lot of them I could tell. But of course, I go to the great inspiration for everything, Facebook. And um, one of the groups I belong to, for those people who graduated from that institution of higher learning, Redline Area Senior High School, somebody posed a question on there, who was your favorite teacher? I didn't have one. I have several. But there is one that stands out. Mr. Hively. He taught math. And you're thinking, oh my God. Not only does he wear glasses, but he actually is a nerd. He likes math. Yeah. But um, I had Mr. Hively for algebra in 10th grade. And uh, my best friend was in the class with me. And he was not very good at math. Or at least he told me he wasn't. I think he was just lazy. But um, I let Craig cheat off of me. He sat behind me. One day we got our test back. And I got an A, and Craig failed. We couldn't figure this out. I'm like, dude, you just messed up. I don't know. Well, before the end of the period, Mr. Hively said to me, he said, Mark, I'd like you to stay after class. I want to talk to you for a minute. Now, in high school, I didn't realize it. I thought I was pretty smart, but actually I was pretty stupid. And things haven't changed a whole lot. I'm just older now. But, uh, and I realized that I really don't know that much. I thought Mr. Hively was going to praise me after class for how well I had done on the test because I did. I did awesome. So, you know, I'm all fooling myself and, yeah, feeling proud. And Mr. Hively very calmly said to me, he goes, Mark, I know what you and Craig have been doing now for a while, and I've just been waiting for it to stop. All of a sudden, I felt like I was about an inch tall, had that lump in the back of my throat that you can't swallow. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, okay. Here comes the detention part, and I'm going to end up taking swats for detention because you could do that back in the day. And um, then I could be filled with resentment also and blame him, Mr. Hively, for me getting detention. Didn't work out that way. Mr. Hively was a great teacher. So I'm standing there waiting to get the punishment. He goes, you can go to your next class, Mark. He didn't do anything. So... After school at wrestling practice, I told Craig, yo, man, this is over. You need to start earning your own grades here. He's on to us. Craig's like, he's not on to us. You didn't get detention. You would have gotten punished. I'm like, nah, he just left me go. And Craig's like, he doesn't let anybody go. No teacher lets somebody go when they're cheating. And of course, I go, I wasn't cheating. You were. He goes, well, you were involved in it. Which is true. I purposely put my paper so he could see it. Um, But uh, I'm like, it's over. You need to earn your own grades. So that stopped. And Craig had to get get his own grades. He passed it with a D, but whatever. 
Um, that's his problem, not mine. <clears throat> so nothing ever happened. I didn't get in trouble. And see, I would have gotten in trouble three times. I would have gotten the swats from Mr. Yuri, who was like 6'2", had a lot of leverage behind that paddle. And yes, I do have experience with it. I would have gotten in trouble from the wrestling coach. And I would have gotten in trouble when I got home. I got punished three times. Nothing. I didn't get punished at all. But this weighed heavy on me. The fact that he did not punish me. So I'm in my 40s. Kim, the wife, and I, we have our kids at, at uh, Haas's because when you have four kids, that's where you go out to eat is Haas's. Because <laughs> they can get a plate of cubed ham and we can get whatever we want, you know. So we're at Haas's, and wouldn't you know it, Mr. Hively's in there. Well, this is the first thing that pops in my head, and I never really apologized for my actions. I just let it go, you know, I got all free. So I walked up to Mr. Hively, and I said, hey, I'm Mark Lentz. He goes, I know, I know who you are. I said, I want to apologize for what I did in 10th grade. <laughs> now, Mr. Hively wasn't done teaching yet. Because he looked at me and said, Mark, you were forgiven when you changed your actions. I learned another lesson from him. You know, um, <clears throat> a lesson on forgiveness. Um, that's why he is my favorite teacher. Mark earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Congratulations, Mark. Next up, we have a story from Sam Ruland, who shared her Groundhog Day-style experience with residents of Gill Street and State College. So, how many of you have seen the movie Groundhog Day? Okay, so a good amount of you, which is good because I don't have to give that too much backstory. But, so, Groundhog Day is one of those classic epic movies where you have kind of that whole space and time continuum sort of thing, you know, up there with like the Matrix, Star Wars, all of that sort of deal. So, you know, the 1993 classic Bill Murray, he's, you know, a selfish guy. He's not very lovable, um, you know, a bad person. And he's stuck in this redundancy of just, you know, the same day over and over again, you know, he can't get it right. Now, I only mention that because I have my own sort of wormhole vortex, and it is Gill Street in State College, Pennsylvania, where I went to Penn State. So I was 19 years old, and I was a sophomore in college. If you remember me from the last time, it was I had just gone over a very long, um, tragic breakup. But um, I was 19 now, and I was ready to find love again, because that is... I always wanted my Penn State family. And so I met this guy, um, you know, a great guy, and he, we started dating. There was a lot of courtship, um, a lot of text messages and flirting and Snapchats, and it was very romantic. And so we were at his house one day on Gill Street, and, you know, we're on the porch, and we're talking, and we're, you know, kissing, and one thing leads to another. And he's like, do you want to go inside? Do you want to go upstairs? And I was like, yeah, because so I'm like, okay, cool, like, which now this doesn't make me look that good to say that, but I was like, okay. So, you know, he's leading me up the stairs, 
you know, we pass. Now, in Penn State, there are these, like, group houses, like clubhouses or fraternity houses. So this was, like, a club rugby house. So he's leading me up the stairs, you know, we're, like, ascending the stairs past the second floor, you know, getting to the third floor. And, you know, you hear, like, the Aerosmith song in the background, like, and I don't want to miss a thing, that sort of thing. Very romantic. Um, and, you know, so we go up to his room on the third floor, and, you know, one thing leads to another again. Um, but then, like most relationships in my life, they, they come to an end, just one way or another. So that one ended. Um, and let me just say, he was 21 at the time, so he was a little older. So I was very, very intrigued by it, but um, it ended nonetheless, like most do. So now, two years later, I'm 21 years old. Um, I'm a little less wide-eyed, and I'm a little smarter, I'd like to say. I can actually legally consume alcohol now. So I meet another boy. And again, lovely courtship, a lot more Snapchats than, you know, texting or anything like that. And, you know, we're hanging out one day, and he, we met in class, and he asked me to come back to his house after class. And I was like, sure. His house is on Gill Street. So, and it's the same house on Gill Street. So I was like, oh, so we're on the porch. And, you know, it's really, really nice, and it's really, really fun. And, you know, we're making out. And one thing leads to another. And he's like, do you want to come inside and go upstairs? And I'm like, okay. Um, so then we're walking up the stairs. You know, the Aerosmith song I don't think was playing this time, but it might as well should have been. And we pass the second floor. And we go to the third floor. And we are in the same bedroom that my ex had once lived in. And it was really, really weird because it was like, this is a different time, um, but it's the same room. I'm older and you're the same age. So we're both 21. Um, it's the same room, but it's different. But I see that sticker on the wall and like totally my ex definitely put that sticker on the wall. Um, you know, and it was kind of weird. So, and then again, one thing leads to another and you know, all good relationships in my life come to an end. So that one ended, and then, you know, I graduate state college, I mean, Penn State, um, but like most alumni, I go back. So come this past April, I went back for the blue-white game, and, you know, I'm in one of the bars, and we're dancing, and the bar closes, and, you know, I get my slice of pizza for a dollar, and this, this guy is like, we should keep hanging out. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So he's like, want to come over to my house? Where do you live? He lived on Gill Street. <laughs> and so I was kind of getting like freaked out at that point. And you know, we're on the porch. We're making out. <laughs> One thing leads to another. And he's like, do you want to go upstairs? <laughs> like I said, I don't look the best in this story, but whatever. <laughs> and so in the throes of passion, our ages come up. And he's 21, but I'm 23 now. And so then I kind of realized that Oh, so I'm kind of like Bill Murray. <laughs> so basically, like, I am Bill Murray. So I'm in my own wormhole vortex of where if I, you know, don't become a good person and I don't learn how to accept love and become kind, then I'm just going to be, like, stuck in this cycle of finding just, well, very attractive, very fit 21-year-old rugby boys, and they'll just be there. So to... My credit, that's not the worst vortex you could be stuck in, but 
I'm hoping that I'm not always Bill Murray. So. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Alan Dietrich Ward. Alan shared the story of an oral history project that allowed him to capture his great-grandfather's life. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so I'm a historian, uh, and um, I uh, have students that come through my classes every year. Uh, and when I'm grading their papers, uh, one of the things I tell them is that this is not Harry Potter. Uh, your job is to not build suspense. Your audience needs to know at the beginning that Harry is going to die, not at the end. Uh, so, did I, I'm sorry if I spoiled that for anyone. He's <laughs> dead, dead, dead kid, dead kid. Anyway, uh, so I'm gonna tell you the end of my story, and that's how I became who I am. So there's, there, that's what you're aiming for. Okay. So when I was a kid, um, my uh, grandparents always told me these wonderful stories of the community that they grew up in. And, and many of you may have heard stories like this from your parents or grandparents about how back in the Depression everybody got together and they slaughtered the hog together or uh, they uh, all went to church or to the Grange together. Um, and the times were hard, but that you always had your community, that you always had everyone together. And um, my grandparents uh, always told me these stories about a little community uh, in southern Ohio, where I'm from, called, uh, called Egypt Valley. Uh, and this is where they were from. And it was called Egypt Valley because after uh, the early pioneers got through the rugged, awful uh, Appalachian Mountains, uh, the flat rolling hills of eastern Ohio were like they had arrived in the land of Egypt, of milk and honey. So um, I always got these stories growing up. But when I was a kid, uh, this land, Egypt Valley, looked very, very different uh, because it had been strip mined out of existence in the 1960s. Uh, all of the, uh, the mountains had been turned over and there were literally valleys where there had been hills uh, and piles of rubble where there had been valleys. Uh, and so that sort of discord in my mind between what the past looked like and what the present looked like uh, was always, I guess, in the back of my mind, very interesting. And so when I went to college, um, I, uh, through a roundabout way, ended up sort of becoming a historian or, or thinking about history. Uh, and um, the very first summer uh, of my college, I uh, enrolled in an oral history class. Uh, it was either that or go home and put up hay with my dad, and I'm not, a, I'm not an idiot. Among many other things I am, I'm not an idiot, so I, I, took, the, I took the easy route and took the summer class. And um, I had to go out and do an oral history project. Uh, and I had to you know, tape record. And um, I chose to do it with my great-grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather, John Major. Uh, he had lived a really difficult life. Um, he uh, was born in uh, about, 19, about 1920, uh, a little earlier than that, um, and um, had very difficult time. Uh, he um, he uh, was a poor farmer. Uh, he had made his way through the Grange. Anybody familiar with the Grange? It's an institution. He was a grandmaster of the Grange, and so he had a lot of respect in his community, but never had very much money. Uh, and so I went and interviewed him. Uh, and I remember distinctly um, him, uh, he, this was an elderly man. He was in his uh, mid-90s. Uh, he was a quilter. Um, and if those of you who are quilters, um, it becomes an obsession or a passion. And we'd always have these quilts from my great-grandfather, Major. And um, when he was in the hospital uh, on his deathbed, the nurses had problems because he kept pulling his IVs out in his sleep because he was quilting, because that was his safe place. Uh, and he was quilting in his sleep. 
And so I did an interview with him. He had been sort of passed. Uh, he was no longer in, living in his, his home, and he, had, uh, he lived in with my great aunt. And um, this is an Appalachian home, um, uh, simple. Uh, I remember distinctly some mice running across the floor while I was, while I was interviewing him. Uh, and um, uh, mice is a nice way of saying rats. Uh, so <laughs> uh, in any event, um, and he was kind of ignored. Um, you know, he was, he was there. He, you know, he couldn't hear very well. He didn't talk a whole lot. Um, I had to ask them to turn the TV off while I was doing the interview. You know, um, he was loved, but he was just sort of taken for granted. And I um, did this oral history with him, and this was a man who, um, who was a pillar of his community. His community meant everything to him. Uh, and his community was taken from him, uh, first of all, by a, by a reservoir went, that went through and flooded his land out, uh, and then by the coal companies that came through and, uh, and strip-mined uh, the rest. And I, I distinctly remember him talking about sort of the flood when this reservoir water, they gave him a check for a, his mother, a check for $1.26, uh, because the reservoir was just slightly uh, impeding on their land, which meant that their land was dry, but you couldn't actually get to it without uh, going through three or four feet of water. So they got a buck 26 uh, for their land. So... Um, in this interview that I did with him, I distinctly remember him talking about uh, the waters coming up and um, the flood coming up. And he told me the flood waters were coming up and they got all the people in the lowlands. And then the strip mines came and took all the uh, high grounds and there wasn't any place for a man to live uh, in between. And um, he cried and I, had never seen him cry. He wasn't a crying sort. And uh, I remember that six months later, he went into the hospital and died. And that oral history recording is all I have of him. And so that story and thinking about the ways in which the past shaped the present and thinking about the ways in which a man's condition, that which is imposed upon him, doesn't define him, made me what I am today, a historian. Thank you. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Tickets for our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com. <laughs>